Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of GTI Insights, Global Taiwan Institute's policy podcast. My name is Marshall Reed, and I'm a program manager here with GTI. And I'm Adrian Wu, a research assistant at GTI. Today, we're, we're so excited to be joined by Dr. Simona Grano, a senior lecturer in Greater China Studies at the University of Zurich, where she also serves as the director of the Taiwan Studies Project. In addition to her great work at UZH, she's also a research fellow at the European Research Center on Contemporary Taiwan in Germany and a research associate at SOAS London. She's an expert in China and Taiwan, and her first book, Environmental Governance in Taiwan, A New Generation of Activists and Stakeholders, was published in 2015 and is available on Amazon. Simona, thanks so much for joining us today. Dear Marshall, Adrian, thank you so much for having me here. It's a real pleasure. Well, Simona, we're, we're really thrilled to have you here to share your unique perspectives. The last two years, European attitudes towards China and Taiwan really seem to have shifted significantly. In response to China's harsh pandemic diplomacy, coercive economic policies, and increasingly visible human rights violations, states across Europe have really begun to turn away from Beijing and in some cases towards Taiwan. While this shift has been primarily led by countries within the European Union, even states outside the EU have started to follow suit. One of the strongest examples of this is Switzerland, which really plays a unique role in the continent's approach to China and Taiwan. With this in mind, we're, we're so excited to have you here to discuss Switzerland's policies towards the Taiwan Strait, as well as broader issues related to environmental governance and civil society relations. Well, Simono, I'd like to just get started kind of broadly and talk a little bit about Switzerland. So obviously, the, the country has long been known for its, its independent, very neutral approach to foreign policy. I'd be interested to hear, you know, how has this approach influenced Switzerland's relations with, with both China and Taiwan, and, and have those relationships evolved over time? Right. It's a great question, Marshall. And let me give you a brief parenthesis on the, on the kind of situation that we have now with the geopolitical competition, the strategic rivalry between the US and the PRC, right? So in, in this situation, it would seem that emphasizing neutrality might offer an easy way out for a country like Switzerland. However, uh, the developments from 1945 onward, and I would say especially after the end of the Cold War, for instance, the wave of democratization in Europe, the role of international law and multilateral institutions have actually diminished the significance of neutrality. And for instance, Switzerland has taken part before in UN economic sanctions, even when these sanctions arose out of military conflicts, as in the case of the first Gulf War. So why do I mention this? Because later on, I'll talk about the sanctions that now have been imposed on the Russian Federation, which Switzerland has followed suit to, and the ones that have been imposed by Europe in 2021 against China. And these, of course, Switzerland has not yet adopted, right? So let me now go briefly into the Swiss-China relationship and then the Swiss-Taiwan relationship. So Switzerland, I should say, is a rather cautious nation regarding doing anything that might upset its relationship with China. And this has historical reasons. Uh, in fact, uh, Switzerland was one of the first countries in continental Europe on January 17, 1950, to recognize the PRC. And to this day, it is guided by its one China policy. Now, the quick recognition at the time was actually a break with Switzerland's previously strained or restrained China policy. And moreover, what was interesting at the time is that Switzerland explicitly recognized the communist government, contrary to its usual practice of recognizing only states and not governments. And there was actually a reason for this. In fact, after the Second World War, Switzerland was isolated due to its neutrality, and it was looking for ways to better network internationally. And moreover, it did not want to repeat the mistake with the Soviet Union, where recognition had been delayed until 
1946. So nowadays, how does the situation stand? Well, the US remains, in terms of uh, economic exchanges, Switzerland's second biggest business partner in terms of importance for its combined foreign trade. I'm talking about imports and exports. But the PRC's importance for Switzerland has grown steadily in the past 20 years. And of course, you can imagine, most notably in the economic sphere. So for instance, to talk about another series of firsts, in 2014, Switzerland was the first country in continental Europe to have a free trade agreement in place with China. And in 2016, it joined the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And then in 2019, it signed a memorandum of understanding on finance and trade with China. But lately, though, this is how things are changing a bit, partly, I would say, due to the extended disruptions of PRC supply chains because of COVID-19 lockdowns. The PRC economic clout is diminishing, not just in Switzerland, of course, and there is a growing realization among the government and the Swiss public of Taiwan's importance for issues such as semiconductors and supply chains reliability, and really, I would say, on how the rest of the world depends on stability across the Taiwan Strait. So, of course, on top of that, like many other countries in the world, Switzerland is quite concerned about China's increasingly bellicose attitude and its disregard for human rights, which, of course, make Taiwan's democracy stand out even more. So how's the situation between Switzerland and Taiwan? Well, as I said before, Switzerland does not maintain official relations with Taiwan out of deference to the Federal Council's One China policy. But nevertheless, the island state is a significant trading partner for Switzerland. In fact, Taiwan is the fifth most important export market for the Swiss industry in Asia. Now, despite this, the idea of establishing a free trade agreement between Switzerland and Taiwan, which had circulated for a few years, was actually shelved a couple of years ago because the Swiss authorities believed that the financial advantages and savings would have been insignificant. But the unsaid thing, in my opinion, was that it was not worth risking irritating China for such modest amounts of custom duty savings, right? In addition, the Federal Council argued by way of an explanation that there are no disadvantages for the economy in terms of market access because Taiwan, just like Switzerland, is also a WTO member and has only concluded a trade agreement with a few partners itself, talking about Taiwan. Now, how is the situation now, and especially, you know, with the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan? So at the moment in Switzerland, pro-Taiwan voices actually dominate the parliament, in the parliament, in the federal parliament, right? And there are several requests to deepen relations with Taiwan, with the island in various ways. For instance, a month ago, the idea of a free trade agreement with Taiwan has been taken up again. As I said, this request has been turned down before by the Federal Council. And on top of this, another proposal, which still has to be discussed, has been presented in June 2022 by the Social Democratic Party of Switzerland, calling basically for Taiwan to become a main hub in the global switch research uh, network and this would be aimed at consolidating and deepening cooperation with Taiwan in the field of science, technology, innovation and culture. And in addition, I should say, the Federal Council, under pressure from the Parliament, is actually preparing a report on Taiwan at the moment. So why did I mention these things? Because in my opinion, these are all signals that there are a lot of voices in the Parliament that are pro-Taiwan and these are growing. This does not mean that all these motions or requests for closer and more official relations will go through. But these are a direct consequence of a mutated geopolitical environment, I would say, with an increasing number of European actors 
maybe we'll also talk about that a bit more later, which have started to embrace the idea of broadening their engagement with Taiwan and to expand on already existing economic ties and cooperation with the island since, as I said, first of all, the corona pandemic, when distrust and disquiet vis-a-vis China uh, was intensifying across the globe. And I think that was the moment in which many countries slowly um, sort of came to see Taiwan as a as a much more trustworthy and reliable partner in, for instance, resilient supply chains, semiconductors and data protection, and really overall a like-minded partner in terms of uh, economic, political cooperation and values. And then the final point, also related to the mutated geopolitical environment, even more recently, in uh, February, Putin's invasion of Ukraine has forced the European Union and its member nations to drastically reevaluate the costs and benefits of trade with Russia. And I think with Xi Jinping binding himself to Putin, right, and China sort of echoing Russian propaganda, especially at the beginning of the war, this re-evaluation on part of European powers and, and Switzerland is now being extended to autocracies in general and more specifically to the PRC. And all of these considerations that I have just made apply to Switzerland, but not Switzerland alone. And of course, after Nancy Pelosi's visit, rumors about a delegation of Swiss parliamentarians wanting to go to the island started to circulate. But Switzerland, by any means, would not be alone in this, right? Thank you so much for giving such a great historical background and overview of current events. I think what you said is really true about how uh, Switzerland's decisions are not just kept in a vacuum, but you know there is a larger context that we need to consider. Jumping off of that, in the recent years, there has been growing talk with the European Union about developing a more consistent, unified approach to China. To what degree does Switzerland align with the EU on China and Taiwan policy? Yeah, this is a this is a great topic actually. So thank you, Adrian, for that. So I should say that despite all talk of independency and neutrality in Switzerland, the recent cascade of foreign policy documents that have come out in Switzerland since 2019, and I will soon mention one, indicate a clear strategy regarding the fact that Switzerland cannot refrain from more partnerships. So European states, which you mentioned, and the EU in particular, are mentioned specifically in this context as Switzerland's, and I quote, most important partners, and I quote again, which share similar positions and values that are often fully congruent. In particular, one of these documents, the China strategy, which I should note is the first country-specific document of its kind implemented in Switzerland in 2021, addressing really how to position Switzerland towards China, underlines the importance of structured relations with the EU, given, and I quote again, the current tense geopolitical situation. So, of course, if you read the whole strategy, it does seem to suggest, even though it remains sometimes a bit vague, but it does seem to suggest the possibility that Switzerland could shift its more prudent positioning towards a more active strategy of uh, balancing against China in the future and, of course, cooperating more with uh, the transatlantic alliance with the US, but also with the EU in this. So far, though, I should say this is more rhetoric than anything else. And Switzerland believes that it is in line with its neutral approach and continue to, continues to stress its provision of uh, good services and, of course, its role in being host to a myriad of international organizations. So, We have seen Switzerland so far refraining from adopting the sanctions towards China because of human rights violation in Xinjiang that I mentioned before, issued by the EU in 2021, while those against the Russian Federation have been adopted a few days after the war broke out, and they have sparked a huge debate regarding the future of Swiss 
political neutrality here in the country, right? So it will be interesting to see, first of all, if the sanctions against China will eventually be adopted or not. And of course, we would be in a very similar situation if China ever were to invade Taiwan. But China, and this is the difference, has a completely different weight in the Swiss in the European and lastly in the global trade markets than Russia and hence why I do believe after one year and a half Switzerland has yet to discuss these sanctions because of the potential economic weight they would bring on us. And finally, I should say, according to a Swiss newspaper a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Federal Council will discuss this month, so we still have five days, whether it wants to adopt these EU sanctions against China or not. And a final point uh, regarding uh, the uh, seeking a closer dialogue with the EU, well, Switzerland could actually do that, seek a a dialogue with the EU and shape a common policy uh, regarding China instead of passively waiting what the EU will do. But the problem, and this you have to break it down to the domestic political level, is that Switzerland has been unable to implement a new institutional agreement, which has long been sought after with the EU. It's called the EU-Switzerland Framework Agreement. And since that moment, relations uh, in the past few months are actually at a standstill. And of course, this makes an aligned policy regarding China even more difficult to to actually achieve. That's definitely interesting. I'd like to look away from China and more towards the other side of the Taiwan Strait and how Europe approaches it. It's been interesting to watch since 2020 and years before and years after that a a good number of EU states have have made news by incrementally expanding their ties with Taiwan, you know, particularly states in Central and Eastern Europe, from the Czech Republic, Lithuania, Slovenia to a certain degree. Interested to hear from your perspective in Switzerland, you know, has this trend of, of states approaching Taiwan influenced Switzerland's approach to Taiwan at all? Yes, it definitely has. But let me give you a brief parenthesis to explain how it really has. So I should say first that the existing free trade agreement Switzerland has in place with China, which I mentioned in at the beginning of our conversation, is actually worth much more than any other agreement we have concluded with non-European countries. And so if China were to suspend this agreement, Switzerland would lose hundreds of millions of francs in custom duties every year. So this means that Switzerland has therefore become susceptible to economic blackmail to a certain extent by China. And this explains its cautious position after observing the case of Lithuania, which really showed us how Beijing can react when it sees the status quo on the Taiwan issue in jeopardy. Complicating matters for Switzerland even further is the fact that a necessary update of the free trade agreement with China has actually been on hold for years. And so Switzerland is afraid of retaliation if it were, of course, to deepen its ties with Taiwan or do anything that might anger China. However, I should say, if the recent global trend toward increased rapprochement with Taiwan gains momentum, and it seems that it it is gaining momentum in the past few, I would say, couple of years and even more so last six months, this may also create opportunities for Switzerland to follow suit. So we do know that an increasing number of European actors actually have started to embrace the idea of broadening, as I said, their engagement with Taiwan, and even to expand on already existing economic ties and cooperation. For instance, we have seen official visits which have increased on parliamentary as well as trade delegation levels between both the EU, but also single member states and Taiwan. And this despite pressures from Beijing, even more so after Nancy Pelosi's visit. So 
<clears throat> Beijing interprets the, the EU's China policy in a very restrictive way, and it expects EU member states, governments to refrain from direct official contacts with Taiwanese authorities, right? And it is exactly, in my opinion, this divergence of interpretations that has led to increased tension, as shown, among other cases, also by the fallout between Vilnius and Beijing, right? So Lithuania, of course, has been particularly active in engaging the Taiwanese administration, including at the governmental level. And its decision to welcome the opening of a Taiwanese representative office was really unprecedented among EU members, because the others we know stick with the formula Taipei representative office. I do not think that Switzerland is headed anywhere near the position of Lithuania anytime soon. <clears throat> Switzerland has two Taiwanese representative offices, one in Geneva, one in Bern, called with the usual formula, Délégation culturelle et économique du Taipei, in French, in Switzerland. The first one was established in 79 in Lausanne with the name at the time, Sun Yat-sen Culture Center, and then moved in 94 to the current address in Bern. And of course, just like for any other country, these offices maintain and develop the bilateral relationship, right, between Taiwan and Switzerland, and of course, serve Taiwan citizens, issue visas to Swiss and other foreign citizens who wish to go to Taiwan. So my final remark, going back to your question, is that Switzerland, just like many other nations, has been impacted by the internationalization of the Taiwan issue. What do I mean by that? That the Taiwan question has really become a major issue in US policy, but also in foreign policy concerns of many other countries lately, including Switzerland, as shown by the debate in the parliament. And the Taiwan issue has become fully internationalized, right? And this is the last thing that China and Xi Jinping want, especially in a situation of China's economic weakness. And I would say this has really influenced public opinion inland in Switzerland and the parliament. And in turn, it puts pressure on the federal council to do more to enhance its cooperation and exchanges with Taiwan. And I would conclude by saying the case of Lithuania is really just one of these examples that have really helped to internationalize the issue even further. So now that we have a, an overview of Switzerland's relationship with Taiwan and China, I'd like to shift more to your area of focus, environmental policy. So in 2015, you published Environmental Governance in Taiwan, a new generation of activists and stakeholders, which we'll link to in the episode description. Could you talk a bit about your motivations in writing the book? What about Taiwan's approach to environmental governance makes it unique? All right. This is a, this is a very emotional topic for me because I, I really uh, enjoyed researching that book and the topic. So the idea, actually, of writing a book on the topic of environmental governance in Taiwan actually started after my reading of another book that concerns itself with this issue, the title of which is Taiwan's Environmental Struggle Toward a Green Silicon Island by Jack Williams and David Zhang a few years ago. And that work was really impressive. It addresses several significant ecological disasters and issues which face Taiwan during the past, I should say, 50 to 60 years. But the analysis in that book terminated at the beginning of the Chen Shui-bian's second presidential term. And when I started to research, I thought that a great deal had actually changed since then. And several promises for a better environment, for instance, by the DPP at the time, had actually been betrayed. And furthermore, an aspect that I thought was hinted at in that pioneering research, but not really fully developed, 
was the strong connection between politics and ecological issues in Taiwan, which I have tried to uh, make into the common thread linking all the various case studies in my book, right? And that has a motivation linked also into the year in which I was doing my research, which inspired me. I was there, especially in 2011, 2012, for more than one year. And 2011 was a particular year because it was a year of celebration for the centennial anniversary of the foundation of the Republic of China. But it was also the year of the shattering earthquake of magnitude 9.1 that hit Japan, right, Fukushima, which brought devastation and death onto the country. And you can imagine that this had a huge impact because Taiwan, geographically close to Japan and also an earthquake-prone country itself, in fact, out of four nuclear plants it has, three are built in the immediate vicinity of seismic faults, while it developed a lively discussion on the nuclear energy issue, which of course gave environmentalists new vigor to fight for the complete acquittal of nuclear power. And before that, actually, anti-nuclear voices had been quite uh, silent. So most importantly, though, 2011 was also a very significant year for Taiwan citizens, politicians and green activists, because it was the year preceding the presidential elections held in January 2012, right? And this meant that every move, every decision and every public display or of outrage or consent towards uh, potentially ecologically damaging projects from, I would say, nuclear power plants to petrochemical complexes like Waguan Shihua or sporting facilities like the Big Egg, the Daji Dan in Taipei, they were mostly driven by ideological and political motivations and actually were exploited and manipulated with the not-so-hidden agenda of attracting votes by all the major parties present on the political scene. And you could really see the strong connections between politics and environmental issues, decisions all around. Connections, by the way, which have become, I would say, to a certain extent, even stronger in light of the current geopolitical tensions with the PRC, and discussions about Taiwan's energy security and self-sufficiency in case of an attack, right, in order to be able to continue sustaining the country's basic, basic services. Now, the, the second part of your question, why uh, is a closer look at Taiwan's environmental governance warranted? Well, I do believe that Taiwan is very special in this regard. It is in many regards, it is a special country, but it underwent a challenging transition from industrial to post-industrial society in which environmental quality slowly, very slowly became a top priority. It wasn't like that at the beginning. And this was after decades of reckless pursuit of profit, right? Then it earned the economic miracle name in the 1980s. It experienced a silent revolution in the direction of democratization in the 90s. And then it cultivated a prosperous civil society in the new millennium, which fights heartily for many causes, among them the environmental one, but not only. So I do believe that these painful lessons that Taiwan has learned throughout its journey should actually be of interest to many other developing countries because Taiwan can really illustrate how the positive transformations it has managed to achieve in bringing about a more, I should say, ecologically friendly mode of economic development actually uh, can be of, of, of model, can serve as a model. And second, I should say Taiwan also possesses, and that's why it is worth studying, one of the most vibrant civil society and environmental movement in the economically dynamic region of East Asia. Uh, we know that South Korea also has a civil society, which is at times confrontational. But as far as I know, environmentalists so far have failed in their challenge to the state's nuclear and petrochemical plants, which Taiwan's civil society have not. And finally, I should say, and that is also a very important point, the case of environmental politics in Taiwan, I believe, is 
of great interest for research on environmental politics at large in comparison, for example, with other countries and in particular with China, because it has a relevance as a model for China to solve its environmental issues, which should not be underestimated. Both countries share authoritarian pasts and even more important, as Taiwan first embarked onto the path of democratization, it was actually really the environmental movement that played a crucial role, using ecological concerns as a tool to attack the authoritarian one-party rule of the KMT, right? This was a valve of, of discontent in a, in a moment in which you could not attack the Guomindang for its political positioning, but you could do so for its ecological positioning. And of course, many of these environmentalists then became opposition, first Deng Wai and then, of course, DPP. Great. Well, Simone, I'm glad you put Taiwan's environmental movement within the context of its broader political evolution. And I think it's interesting, too, that since 2015, Taiwan has really continued that evolution. It's it's continued to move on. It's continued to change. And since 2015, there's been two presidential elections in which Tsai Ing-wen's Democratic Progressive Party was victorious both times. I'm interested to hear, how has Taiwan's environmental policy continued to evolve under Tsai? Is it you know, has it changed notably? Has it continued on the same path? And just to look towards the future a little bit, do you see it continuing to evolve in the future? You know, what do you expect for the future of Taiwan's environmental policy? Right. So, yeah, it has evolved, of course. I mean, first of all, the, the first time that she was and the DPP was elected in 2016, actually did represent a golden opportunity to ride the wave of popular discontent that had been forming, I should say, under the past few years of the Guomindang administration and try to turn dissatisfaction in its favor also by championing several quote-unquote secondary issues, not because they're less important, but unfortunately in elections that's often how it is, such as environmental protection and social issues that are especially popular among younger voters and that were previously in Taiwan advocated by smaller political formations, like for example, the Green Party of Taiwan or by social movements, but not by the DPP. So this explains why in 2016, the uh, electoral tournament, the DPP enlisted several former NGOs leaders, activists, as well as academics with a very strong environmental and social engagement, and that did trace their origins to the social movement's galaxy. Uh, just to quote a few, um, Green Party chairperson Chen Manli at the time, or Tsai Pei Hui, who is the previous secretary general of the organization Taiwan Rural Front and was herself involved in many ecological campaigns of the past, such as, for example, fighting Taiwan's eight petrochemical co complex, Shihua, that I mentioned before, or advocating for land justice issues, right? So what happened initially when she was elected, Tsai Ing-wen, is that with the increased institutionalization of social activists, formally enlisted in the DPP's ranks, environmental protesters actually shifted their modus operandi from more contentious acts, which had become quite common, I should say, during the last four years of the Mainju administration, such as, for instance, street protests, occupation of public spaces, to more formal policy channels, which were open for them by the DPP government, right? And the less hostile relationship between such important groups like state and civil society has actually represented a positive outcome, which has allowed activists to achieve some transformation of the system from within, and for instance, achieve the closure of controversial plants, most notably, I would uh, name nuclear power plant number four after the sunflower student movement, right? In fact, by appointing key technical figures in key positions of power of the environmental hierarchy, the DPP actually has um, been able to achieve some uh, long sought solutions to many, to many environmental plights, uh, which still were affecting the country. And let me name one specifically. In 2018, 
the country's legislature actually approved several amendments to Taiwan's Air Pollution Control Act. And they managed to place tighter emission restrictions on old cars and diesel trucks, for instance. So I would say that this is in line with the Tsai administration agenda in terms of energetic provision. She has consistently shown that she pursues a green agenda by trying to diminish its reliance on nuclear while increasing the country's share of renewable resources, right? And we know nuclear energy is also a complicated matter, which traditionally has sort of epitomized ideology-laden issue opposed by the DPP and supported by the Guomindang, on which, by the way, the Tsai administration has suffered some setbacks with the referendum in 2018. What is clear is that energetic provision as well, and this is important as the environmental issues, have again faded into the background in the past couple of years. And I would say, especially since the beginning of the Hong Kong protests in June 2019, with, for example, all the three candidates and parties for the 2020 elections, and here you see a huge difference between the campaign before the 2016 elections, doubling up to come up with new ways on how to deal with the China threat and really environmental issues once again fading into the background, right? And going back to your questions, uh, or how do I see the future of, of, of environmental uh, and other uh, similar concerns in Taiwan. I think it really all depends on the fact that Taiwan is a really committed actor. Maybe we have time, maybe not, to talk about what it is doing for greenhouse gas reduction. Uh, but it is also an actor that is facing an existential threat on the other side of the strait. So if I take a step back, and think about what I told you since the beginning of our conversation, I think it makes a lot of sense that at the time in which tension were lower, 2011, 2012, you had a lot of attention to ecological and other more secondary issues. And now, once again, the tensions are high and the political uh, situation and the geopolitical situations have mutated. Once again, you have other concerns that uh, stand out and, of course, ecological issues fade into the background. Well, that seems to be a unfortunately common thread uh, across a lot of the world. Uh, well, Simona, thank you so much for for doing so much to to cover two very different topics here, looking a lot at Switzerland's relationship with China and Taiwan and Taiwan's environmental governance. But I think you've done a great job of really providing a lot of valuable context. So, Simona, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you also to all our listeners for joining us for another episode of GTI Insights. Many thanks also to the great staff, interns, and fellows at GTI for all their help with every step of producing this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about GTI, be sure to check out our website at globaltaiwan.org, where you can find information about our Global Taiwan Brief, our frequent public seminars, and our other podcasts. You can also listen to more episodes of GTI Insights on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been GTI Insights. GTI Insights.